here with an interview with Elliot Tellenfeld. Um, he had reached out to me regarding a new book that he had uh, put out and wanted to learn a little bit more, and I thought it would be interesting to a lot of the people that I'm connected with. So, Elliot, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Sure, Jim. Good to be with you. Awesome. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Well, I've spent my professional life as an attorney. I'm now uh, semi-retired. Uh, I serve part-time as a municipal court judge. Uh, but um, late in my career, I decided to uh, go back to school and got myself a master's degree in counseling. That was partly for my own uh, interest and uh, curiosity, but it also reflected that I'd spent uh, uh, 25 years living with uh, my first wife, who was a psychotherapist, and uh, with her engaged in all kinds of therapeutic exercises and explorations and counseling programs and so on and so forth. So I had an abiding interest in the process of communication, uh, particularly between a husband and a wife, and uh, wanted to formalize my education along those lines uh, by getting a degree. Awesome. So what's the, what's the nature of the book that you put together? Well, the book is essentially a memoir. It's, it's not a, uh, uh, an academic book or a how-to manual, but it, it's called uh, Through a Still Imperfect Lens. It shows a, on the cover, it shows the Hubble uh, telescope uh, photograph of uh, a distant uh, galaxy, which is quite spectacular. But the point of the picture and of the subject matter is that <clears throat> we're all uh, in a process of trying to... Uh, fix the, the defects in our ability to perceive uh, ourselves and each other and, and until we get to ultimately the clearest uh, possible picture. Um, the subtitle uh, is A True Story of Personal Growth and Relationship from a Psycho-Spiritual Perspective. Uh, that's a mouthful, um, but uh, I, uh, during my training and all throughout my life, have been struck by the um, interplay between uh, psychological processes and our spiritual growth and, and processes. And um, uh, I play that out by describing uh, from an early age uh, my own search process and, uh, and issues and conflicts. I do it in a very personal way, a very self-disclosing way, and uh, intersperse each anecdote with uh, some analytic interpretation of, of what was really going on uh, between inside me and between me and the person I was dealing with at the time, um, and it goes through the uh, goes against the backdrop of my two lengthy marriages. So it's quite personal. Um, you know, I um, I described in the book my relationship uh, at some point with M. Scott Ackroyd, the book, uh, famous book, uh, The Road Less Traveled. Mm. Uh, Dr. Peck encouraged me, he saw drafts of this work and encouraged me to f continue to the end, as he put it, with the writing of this book, to which you obviously seem called. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, The uh, the Road Less Traveled was a very influential book for me and many other people, and it exposed to me to uh, the stories of his clients, uh, whom he disguised their identities, but described the challenges that they faced and how they overcame them through the uh, therapeutic process. What I wanted to do uh, was essentially take that to the next step, and that is uh, put my own life uh, out there 
without a pseudonym and uh, describe my relationships and my processes and struggles and how I work through them and uh, where they've led me. So what's an example of a, of a struggle that you had and kind of how the psycho-spiritual helped transition from kind of a, a wanting state, uh, you know, a lacking state to something more fulfilled? I mean, I would I would agree that like right now I think we're seeing really the beginning of a of a new age in terms of not to steal a phrase but a, a new age in terms of the merging of science and spirituality. I mean, you look at some of the advances in quantum physics and how they've been linked back to um, more 
kind of spiritual connections, you know, there's sure. there's building blocks there that are in process of, of coming together and and um, more and more people are, are becoming aware of that. So it's, oh, it's absolutely. And in fact, I just came back a few months ago from a conference in California uh, of the Association uh, for Transpersonal Psychology. Mm. And, uh, you know, that is an organization that's been around for about 50 years, but it started out with the humanistic movement, which attempted to move psychology from the medical model and, and the narrow uh, aspects of the diagnosing mental illnesses into a, a more positive psychology of human potential and growth. It started with Rollo May and, and Maslow, Maslow and uh, at at some juncture about 50 years ago, those folks began to think that there was actually another step that could be taken. And uh, this, this new wave was to explore the spiritual, the psychic, uh, the so-called uh, paranormal, uh, things like uh, hypnosis and past life regressions and mm -hmm. dream interpretation and all of those things and incorporate them into the legitimate scientific uh, or more scientific um, uh, world uh, that psychology had been trying to to bring uh, to bear on our feelings and our uh, interrelationships and so on. So yeah. that's largely what, what the book is about. The um, I mean, I think that that's important. And, you know, one of the things that I found is that you know these kinds of experiences that we have are uniquely individual because whether it's because of the background that we have or kind of you know spiritual um, superpowers that we each have they're all individual and, and so it becomes a challenge from i guess the scientific model where you can't necessarily replicate you can't replicate um Findings because each human being is uniquely individual. And yes, well, the, the so-called scientific model is based on the premise that uh, all that exists is what we can see, feel, touch, hear, or taste. Exactly. And, and we can measure those five aspects of, of our so-called reality. Uh, but, you know, uh, I mean, when my dog barks uh, because somebody is approaching the, the, uh, the door... Um, but, but I have no clue that there's anybody there because his senses are so much more keen than mine are. Um, you know, he's tapping into a, an expanded, um, range of those, of that sensory data that I myself don't perceive. Now, who's to say that there aren't other ranges uh, of experience and data coming in that are surrounding us in this world um, that neither I nor the dog uh, are yet capable of perceiving. So the idea of transpersonal psychology, I think, is to open ourselves at least to the possibility that there is incoming data uh, all around us. Some of us perceive more or less of it yeah. at any given moment. Yeah. Um, but that it's no less worthy of exploration and documentation just because it doesn't fit within the normal criteria of how much does it weigh and how large or small is it? Is it hot or cold and so on? Well, the challenge is that it that doing that requires really self-examination, like the work that you've done. 
and the ability to be able to see those different things and acknowledge them. Like so many things happen to us in our daily life, you know, one of the unique benefits of the mind is its ability to filter out um, filter out things and to right. focus on things, but you have to be aware of what you're filtering out and if you're filtering out something that really you need to pay attention to. Um, and that's a very scary process to open yeah, up yeah. Uh, because we have, we have defense mechanisms uh, for a reason. Uh, they protect us from uh, feelings or experiences or conflicts of which we would prefer on some level to remain unaware. Um, so that makes the world of psychology, I mean, if you, if you just limit yourself to the, to the scientific world, it's fairly safe because we're dealing with objective things that don't personally touch us. Um, when we move over to the psychological or psycho-spiritual, as I call it, um, we're now uh, threatening to discover things about ourselves and others and our relationships that, uh, that uh, are uncomfortable. There's a concept in psychology called projection, which means uh, we tend to uh, exaggerate in others the tendencies or issues that we would prefer not to be looking at uh, in ourselves. So we have all these mechanisms that we've created to avoid self-awareness. But if we truly want to grow and to live conscious uh, lives, uh, then we need to take some chances and we need to... uh, be willing to be a little bit vulnerable to the upheaval yeah. uh, that is going to come our way when we start to open our eyes. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think one of the challenges is that it's it's really uh, it's really binary. You're either interested in the self-examination and doing the work and understanding that you know, it's a journey, not a destination, that it's going to take a long time. It's forever. And there's the other side that people avoid the work because they think it's too hard and they want to take the easy way out. But the reality is, by not addressing things, they actually make life harder and they experience more pain and instead of dealing with it and actually making progress and growth. Let me give you a concrete example. Uh, this is a story that I tell in the gro- in the book. My brothers and sister and I grew up with an alcoholic father who was a, a mean drunk. Uh, it was a very difficult uh, home life in that regard. And as I grew older and began to explore how all of this had affected me, um, and particularly as I got involved in these new agey, top psychological processes, I started to judge my younger brother, who didn't seem nearly as interested or curious or aware of how we had been affected by that uh, adverse upbringing. And one time I looked him straight in the eye and I said, you know, you just don't seem to to, to be here. I can't feel you. I, I hear your words, but do you have any feelings at all? And he said, no, Elliot, I don't have feelings. Mm. I can't give you what you want. And this struck me as both uh, incisive on his part of getting to the core of what I was asking for, which was a more uh, intimate relationship between the two of us, and his sweeping statement that he simply didn't feel. And I asked him, how long have you been 
feeling? And he says, yes, the last time was when I was about seven years old. Wow. Dad was ranting at mother. And I started to cry. Mm. And I asked mother, what is daddy so mad at? And mother's response was, it's not daddy. It's the alcohol. And with that one fell swoop, my mother essentially severed the emotional response from the behavioral cause. In other words, she put my brother, she spared him his immediate discomfort and anxiety by uh, pretending it away, in effect, making it uh, an unreal experience not really worthy of his attention. Yeah. And, and so that denial was, a, was a, in a sense, you could say that her motives were to spare him pain and discomfort. No, don't take it personally. It's not really your dad. It's the, this, this foreign substance that he has imbibed. Um, but at the same time, it, it, because of the very relief that it brought him, it taught him to essentially disassociate yes. from incoming emotional data that was unpleasant. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and that shuts one down because you can't, uh, we're not like a, uh, a TV uh, transmitter that if we pay the fee for HBO or Showtime, we'll, someone can flip a switch and let that, uh, those, those spectra come in because uh, we've paid for them. It's not an, it, we're, we're more all or nothing if we turn off our sensitivity to emotional inputs. You know, what I think is in, what I think is interesting is the fact that you know most people. Who was it? Um, who was the philosopher? It was uh, Emerson, I think. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation, and you know you see that in people, and it's like that disassociation. I think that's that's exactly the right term. Most people live disassociated from life itself. So, for your brother, like, where do you take that conversation? Do you, how do you get him to a point where, like, does he have a wife that he loves that actually he loves? I mean, how do you go farther well, I, to I, overcome I, that? My brother, as it turns out, never really overcome these issues. So he lived a rather isolated life, a life which, uh, to to his sensitivities, is perfectly comfortable. Mm. Um, but without relationships, essentially. Wow. And one of the themes of the book is that by entering into uh, intimate relationships, we basically invite our spouses or significant others to begin to have the direct and immediate emotional impact on us that all of our resistances and defenses notwithstanding hold the promise of opening us up um, so it's in the give and take with our significant other and, and specifically in the conflicts that arise, no. uh, ironically enough. Well, the problem is that, that with inviting people in, it creates vulnerability, right? And and so you end up, how do you then deal with that vulnerability? Do you push back? Do you fight? Do you? Well, well this, is the, this is the trick and this is the challenge. Uh, authenticity, emotional authenticity and self-awareness about how we're feeling in the moment rocks the relational boat. Yeah. Uh, it, it tends to confront uh, our partners who, you know, when we enter into a relationship with somebody, we, we establish a certain homeostasis. Yeah. Um, there, there's a certain tacit agreement. 
that, okay, you're going to behave in these sorts of ways and I'm going to behave in these sorts of ways and the two of them are going to sort of complement one another and work together. For instance, uh, so many people uh, have or know relationships where one spouse is particularly dominant and controlling and the other is passive. Um, and that, that sort of works from a practical standpoint of getting along from day to day. You know, we know who's going to be wearing the pants or who's going to be compliant. Um, but it, it's, a, uh, it's a stability that is achieved at a great cost because each of those individuals has kind of uh, walled off their own growth. Um, well, they've by, surrendered a potential future that is, they've surrendered a potential future. You know. That's right. Yeah. By, by putting themselves in a relationship that sort of locks them into the status quo. Yeah. And that's why, uh, or any kind of you know, real uh, personal growth work, uh, is, is, is a potential threat to, to relationships. it 
in, into less evocative so-called I statements that, that basically distance the, 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 the two participants from the conflicts that, that they're really trying unconsciously to help each other bring to the fore so they can get some resolution. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, we've dealt with therapists on some situations um, where I'm connected to, and, you know, one of, I don't know if you know, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of Ram Dass, um, who is fairly knee-deep in what we're talking about here, and one of the reasons that I was, you know, excited to, to really talk, but, um, you know, Ram Dass... Uh, he, was a, he was an early supporter of the transpersonal movement and the people involved with it. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, he was he was a psychologist himself. And, you know, one of the things that struck him, uh, not to badmouth psychologists, but one of the things that struck him is that psychologists are are always in the process of having a person being healed, but it's really not in their wheelhouse to have somebody healed. And because then they have to find, this is his words, not mine, it's because then they have to go out and find another client. Um, so in some respects, I mean, when you're engaging in therapy, it also becomes incumbent upon the individual to be aware of this so that they can, you know, protect themselves. Uh, you know, awareness of kind of different people's agendas, I think, are important. So. Well, and I have profound respect for the uh, the basic in integrity and altruism of of most uh, therapists. But he, he, for instance, Carl Rogers was a hero of mine, and he he brought in this humanistic concept of client centered therapy, where you establish a relationship that is warm and rich and um, models for the client. Uh, the way relationships can be. And uh, one of the things that Rogers claimed to uh, offer his clients was something he called unconditional positive regard. And I always felt like I wanted, if he were alive, pick up the phone to him and say, Carl, let me, let me interrupt you for a minute. You, you're talking about unconditional positive regard that you're charging $250 an hour for mm. and doling out in 45-minute increments that stop the moment the client walks out the door. Yeah. I said, how unconditional can that really be? Yeah. So uh, that's why I have such a strong uh, bias towards doing work within the context of the relationship yeah. where the two partners have an ongoing unconditional, uh, well, it's not really unconditional, but an ongoing commitment to each other to be there to, yeah. uh, with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, M. Scott Peck, who uh, I mentioned earlier, he's the author of The Road Less Traveled, ha had an iconic statement in, in that book that uh, went something like this. Every truly loving relationship is one of mutual psychotherapy. And when I read that, it just struck me as so profound. And I ended up getting into about a 10-year long correspondence with Peck over the meaning and the implications of that. And, and how, how could we really pull that off? Because one of the reasons that, uh, that therapists wall themselves off on an interpersonal level from their clients, in other words, they don't socialize with their clients. They don't tell their clients about themselves. 
client somewhere in the process asks, well, how are you feeling, doctor? Uh, he's likely to get a response, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. Yeah. So that's a necessary part of the clinical therapy. And, and the reason is because if the therapist allows his own personal feelings and experiences to come into play and to get triggered, as you might hear today, um, that's going to cloud his judgment. Um, and it, it, it seems to me that we need to figure out, in light of Tech's suggestion, that every truly loving relationship is one of mutual psychotherapy. Well, it, we it also all, goes to the point of, uh, you know, what Ramdas would say, unconditional love, right? I mean, it's, yes. it's the concept which, which, of being able to love unconditionally, regardless of what a person does and acts, but with that unconditional love, become it becomes a contract of responsibility for each other, which sure, is what you're getting to. Which is but what there's you're a step to. that you're, there's a step that you're skipping, I think, and that is, if you're going to experience uh, and display unconditional love, how do you deal with your own subjective emotional reactivity to what your partner is putting you through? In other words, we can't deny our emotions and our reactions and our disappointments and our anger and our frustration. Um, but, it, but loving unconditionally, to me, means going through that experience, keeping our ego out of it, yeah. and managing to love at the same time as we are experiencing emotional adversity. Yeah. and work through that. That's the real commitment and the real unconditional love. Yeah, and not take on, you know, adverse statements from the other, you know, in some sense. I mean, I, I kind of experience this myself where I have to let things roll off my back basically like a duck. It's one of well, my, it's one of my superpowers. Right. Because if I took that, that, that anger one that somebody feels um, that's, it's well-deserved anger directed at, you know, somebody that hurt her. You know, right. if I took that and she directed it towards me and I took that on myself, it would be destructive. But my ability... to become defensive. Yeah, but my ability to just understand that it's not me that she's mad at. It's, it's what happened. And to hear it, yeah. hear it more objectively. And that's, that's the essence of, of, of what I believe is... is the mutual therapeutic process. The problem is most of us don't have that ability that yeah. you just described. It's tough. It's we tough. It's and tough. We don't know how to don't know how to fight cleanly. Yeah. So so what we have to do is sanitize our 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 emotions, uh, not of their energy or their passion, but of all desire to inflict pain on on our beloved. In other words, retaliation, yeah. shame punishment, belittlement. Well, but, but the challenge is that well, usually what I find is that when the partner is hurting the other, it's in periods of disassociation and she's not aware of it. Like She's projecting. Yeah, but I mean, it's she's disassociating. So, I mean, in some sense, she's not responsible for what's going on. So, my, my, my statement would be what the key is is actually the communication and the ability to 
discuss it openly without fear and in that way be able to sap the energy out of the attack, out sure. of the negativity. And, and that's because, a whole lot easier for a therapist, a detached therapist to do. Well, because the therapist doesn't have an emotional dog in the hunt. In other words, it's a lot harder to actually have a relationship than to counsel one. True, but the true, to, to but the the therapist is not going to love you unconditionally. There like you go. loving unconditionally is a relationship, right? Regardless. Right. right. So how do we learn to pull that off as individuals and as couples, so that we can truly hear and have the insight of a therapist and the non-judgmental. Uh, ability to withstand the onslaughts that we get, that we understand our projection and transference and 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 uh, uh, unconscious processes going on in our beloved's uh, mind yeah. and emotional state, and and yet at the same time uh, allow ourselves to feel some modicum because there's no way if you're if you're married to a person and and you're continuously feeling this unrelenting onslaught of anger, uh, particularly if it's being expressed in an unclean way. You'd have to be superhuman, and you, you may be that rare person, uh, but you have to be superhuman not to have it trigger uh, defensiveness and, and, and anger and rebuttal and, and so on. And so the real, the real challenge is not to uh, divorce yourself, to detach yourself and say, you know, you can't make me feel anything. I, I am above this or I am seeing this for the projection that it really is. Um, you know, you need to feel your own response of emotionality, but express that, figure out a way to express your own tip for that tat in a, in a uh, decent, humane, loving uh, communicative way, and man, that is uh, that is about the hardest thing there is. No doubt. You know, you know what I draw the strength from to be able to do it every night is the fact that we've been together for seven years, and you know, I see the growth that's happened over those seven years. And those seven years, you know, it could just as easily be seven months, right? It could be a month, but. When you talk to that person the next day and you say, or you talk to that person even that night and you say, you know, oh, I look and I see how much you've grown, how far you've come. I mean, in some sense, that gives them the reaffirmation that this is worth it. It's worth the investment. It's worth the the pain. And for me, it becomes, you know, hey, I can do this, and it's worth it. Absolutely, so, and, a, yeah. and a good therapist knows the importance of validating the clients and and, uh, and creating a safe environment for them to go through their stuff. So we've gone through all these things. Like, where does spirituality fit into this? Like, how does, how does spirituality come into the mix? Well, here's what I believe. I think that ego in the sort of spiritual sense of, um, not, not the way Freud meant it, but in the sense of self-absorption or, or thinking ourselves better than others. Ego is the mother of all of our defense mechanisms. And so what 
emotionally engaged in a, in a conflict situation with our lover. Ego hovers all around us like a vulture, looking for an opportunity to basically commandeer that process and corrupt it so that we, so that we digress into blame and shame and punishment and worst of all, or, or, or most uh, hidden when we pretend not to care. Okay, fine. That's the way you feel fine. Uh, so, so those are all ego driven. And what we have to realize is that if we can learn to inure ourselves to ego, and I don't mean, you know, uh, pretend it away, but recognize its influence and detach ourselves, however much we're capable at any given moment, from the association with that need to win, to be right, uh, to be vindicated, to be better than, um, then we can allow our base emotionality to ripen. Instead of being co-opted, it can ripen into intuition, into self and other awareness, which is the same thing that the therapist is, is bringing to bear. But the therapist isn't disadvantaged as we are by being so personally involved and caught up in it. So our challenge as mutual therapists is to recognize our own ego hovering and wanting to come in and keeping it at bay so that we can have an honest uh, exchange of our emotion and of our needs and our conflicts with our beloved and yeah. get to the bottom of it and heal. Yeah. And that's where our healing ultimately comes from, not from any intellectual resolution of the so-called issues uh, between us, um, but from the engagement uh, and exchange with our, with our beloved in a way that is vulnerable and ultimately leads us to resolution. Yeah. Uh, there's actually, um, you know, I've gone to a number of retreats in uh, Maui to see Ram Dass, um, the uh, Open Your Heart in Paradise retreats, and um, we, uh, we have frequently seen Jack Cornfield, uh, and Jack has this uh, process where he says... Uh, when you're, when you're dealing with anger, like, ah, anger, there you are. And you identify it and you tag it. And in some ways, it, it helps it, it helps to uh, diffuse it. It helps to put a tag in it and come back to it later. But it, it ends up not controlling you. I, I agree that that's a very useful process. The trick is is to not go all the way with that into denial, like my mother telling no. my brother. It's, yeah, exactly. It's not, you're not really feeling anything. Don't take it personally. But to realize that there is an ego experience of, of my hurt and disappointment, and that's not me. Yeah. The ego that wants to lash out in response to that is not me. And, uh, and that's where the, the door opens to potential healing. Well, and there, there, right there, is the path that needs to be looked at in terms of spirituality. It's recognizing the other that you know that we're we're spiritual beings having a human existence, in essence. That's right. So emotion, and 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 so what? What I'm saying in trying to connect the psychological process to the. Uh, to the 
spiritual process is that our emotions are our nascent intuition and spirituality. And, uh, and that spirituality, that intuition is our emotion enduring itself to ego so as to attain its wisdom. And such wisdom, which is born of our emotionality, not of our intellect or our understanding, is what will light the way to our eventual emotional and relational healing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, we've run a good bit over, but uh, I think it was well worth it. Uh, Elliot, if somebody wants to reach out to you and, and learn more, how can they reach out to you? Well, I have a website. It's, uh, it's called stillimperfectlens.com, and that's from the title of the book, Through a Still Imperfect Lens. Um, and they can uh, contact me by by message there, uh, or on uh, on Facebook uh, through Messenger, um, or uh, I'll give you my email if anyone wants to reach out directly that way. It's E C like Charles Talenfeld, E C Talenfeld T A L E N F E L D at AOL dot com. And I, I know I date myself by. <laughs> still, still using AOL, but uh, that's where I am. Awesome. I'll, uh, I'll also put the link for the book in the uh, description on the uh, podcast. So I appreciate uh, that. It's available on Amazon. I priced it very, very reasonably because I want it to be to be read. Uh, and it's also available in the Kindle edition, so you can download it and have it on your iPad or your or your Kindle in in thirty seconds uh, for just a few bucks. Awesome. Elliot, thanks again for taking the time, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Jim.